Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome. My guest today is uh, Wimmel Gore, Head of Bond, Income and Defensive Strategies at Pendle Group. Wimmel, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me on today. So I guess you know the, the big question that everyone wants to know is sort of where are we in markets today and, and your view? I know you've typically had sort of a, a more pessimistic view in terms of the economy and the economic climate. Maybe if you could sort of start us off there. Yeah, I think um, we can, it's, it's probably worthwhile starting right at the beginning um, as opposed to kind of coming into where assets are priced now to get an understanding of how our thought process has moved through. Um, we were always of the belief that the Fed had over-tightened rates anyway. So there's a number of things that were weighing on the global uh, economies before we had the virus hit. So the virus was obviously an unexpected shock that came out of nowhere. No one could have forecast it. But our belief was that the Fed had over-tightened rates and that coupled with two things. Firstly, the trade uh, tensions we're seeing across the globe, plus the deleveraging cycle and the shift of the economy they were trying to do in China, which is bringing their trend growth rate down. The three of these facts combined were going to weigh on global growth anyway. And then obviously, as you come through to the early part of the year, um, you're getting the pandemic hitting, the virus hitting, and then the, the central banks responded quite quickly to that. But our belief was always that Fed was going to be high cutting rates at the beginning of this year anyway. And we're just seeing a turbocharged reaction to that from the markets as we come to grips with this, the virus. The, the second point is that we mentioned that no one could have foreseen this virus, but the size of the impacts on the economic growth from the virus is, is completely unprecedented. It's unbelievable in size. And when you look back at the, um, the crisis we've had before, there'd been a financial crisis. So you look at the GFC, the European crisis of 11, you look at um, you know, the dot-com crisis, all of these kind of things, they were financial market implications that fed back into Main Street. This is completely different. This is a health crisis, which is feeding into Main Street, which is then affecting uh, financial assets as a byproduct. And that's why the movements we're seeing now are so large. So what we're seeing is central banks um, effectively go to crisis um, mode very quickly. They have the playbook of the GFC, which they could use, which was great. So they cut rates to effectively zero across the world. And then they enacted more um, unconventional monetary easing. So we had conventional monetary easing, which is rate cuts. We have unconventional monetary easing, which is QE policy, yield curve caps, all these kind of things. Then we had fiscal policy, which came out of the various governments around the world, the size of which is just completely unprecedented. And it just makes your brain hurt to think of the magnitude of some of these numbers out there. I mean, for example, the US budget deficit can easily get to 20%, like easily. Um, and then we've now started entering this realm of un unconventional fiscal policies, which are MMT. And all of these, uh, um, uh, all of these different kind of four measures, conventional, unconventional, monetary and fiscal, are all kind of cross-currents that, that are impacting asset markets at one time or another. But ultimately, from in my seat, which largely manages bonds, um, the, the key thing is the bond yields head down to zero and probably going to go negative all across the world. 
How, how, how do you, you know, I guess, explain to to a investor at the end of the day for members at a lot of these super funds that you're going to to negative interest rates in, in some of these bonds, right? Where traditionally this was seen as a as a, a stable uh, income source, it was seen as a defensive asset. Do they still offer that same sort of ability now for for investors? Yeah, they do. I mean, the key thing is that it's it's to move away from this whole focus on nominal mm-hmm. and to think about real. Now, real yields in the US have have oscillated between positive and negative numerous times over the last 50 years. Um, but now, because we've been in a, um, because since the 1980s, we've been effectively in a large debt super cycle, and that has brought with it, and there's been a number of factors which have compounded that debt super cycle, you know, the, the increasing use of technology and the internet, Amazon, demographics, these kind of things. But effectively, this debt super cycle has brought with it um, falling long-run averages of nominal GDP, real GDP, and inflation. And effectively, as your nominal GDP and nominal interest rate converge to zero, as they have, well, then it just the, the movements in the um, real rate are much more visible. So effectively, the real rates are always the, the rate that's driven economies, but they've been masked because nominal rates have been higher. Now normal rates are pretty much at zero, so therefore you're you're left in a situation where people are complaining about nominal rates being zero, but really they're largely irrelevant because it's always the real rate that matters. You've always got to take into account what what the value of an asset is today, given the outlook for inflation in the future. Mm-hmm. So that and that's the key thing, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, at length in a minute about why I, I'm firmly of the view that interest rates are going to go negative around the world. Well, to, to that point, we've, we've heard overnight that Powell, Powell's made his speech, but Trump's been really trying to push the, the Federal Reserve to go you know, into negative rates. Um, we also saw some movement late last week in the futures market where there were some expectations that would be going into negative rates. So maybe this is, this is the chance. Um, yeah. It's interesting because I did a lot of work on this maybe about two to three months ago. And, and the premise I'm coming from is, again, nominal yields are zero. I mean, okay, they're 50 basis points in the US, but it's around again. They call them zero. We're hitting, in the future, I'm convinced we're going to be hitting inflationary episodes. And that's about the money supply that's been pumped through the system. But that's for next year, year after, whenever. Right now, for the next six months to a year, we're going to be in a deflationary episode. And that's because the economy hit a full stop. And the interest rate, so the inflation rate is largely driven by the business cycle. And the business cycle is, is effectively stopped. So therefore, we're going to get a deflationary episode. Now, the size of the deflation is incredibly hard to model, but it could be anywhere minus 2 to minus 4%. So if you've got nominal yields, which are zero, mm-hmm. and you've got inflation, which is, say, minus 3%, well, that means you've got an increase of real yields of 3%. Now, as I mentioned earlier, real yields are the thing that drives the economy. So how... Does it, how is economic growth going to fare when they get a massive increase in interest rates, which is what real yields are? They have no choice. Now, the Fed's already pretty much kitchen sink this. They've done everything they possibly can do, everything they're allowed to do, and then they've done a bunch of stuff which is, you know, it's largely illegal, and they've skirted around the, 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 um, the legalities of what their remit is at the Fed and done a bunch of stuff which is illegal. What they're doing in high-yield bonds is very clearly illegal, but hey, that's, that's, an, um, that's a discussion for another day. But they, they've pretty much done everything they can. So if, yes, they can do yield curve control. They can do more quantitative easing. But what are they going to do? They're going to drive 
10-year treasuries from 50 to zero. It's going to have zero impact in a world where real yields are going up by 3%. So what they need to do is to, is to get interest rates down as quickly as they possibly can. And I mentioned, I did a bunch of work on this about three months ago. And I suppose a lot of the big treasury operations in the US, you know, the like the really big like mega banks and their treasury operations, the guys effectively, you know, control the money markets and lobby the Fed um, and lobby the Fed and Congress. And and what came back to me then is they were not operationally ready. And there was a belief, one, that they didn't they didn't want to do it, they weren't operationally ready, but two, that it wouldn't work. And there was this this focus on what happened to Japan and Europe. And I think that's a misfocus because Japan and Europe have been in a slow grind for a long time and they've taken rates incrementally um, negative and then a little bit more and a little bit more on Aonia. So the European front end's price for another 10 basis points of cuts now, but it's, it's marginal stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they never dealt with the underlying problem, the underlying malaise, which meant that they saw the yield curves flatten and that crushed the banking system and therefore credit creation. And it, it, um, compounded the problem you know the, the the argument and this is really framed by um the Rogoff article we saw in product syndicate um just the last few days and then obviously that's ignited this conversation in the us is that you don't want to go minus 25 minus 35 minus 50 over the course of a bunch of years you go to minus three percent pretty quickly and you force the banks and you force the financial institutions not to hold cash they have to get it out into the system. And it's a short, sharp shock, which means people can't just atrophy their money markets, which is what happened in Japan and Europe. And they're forced to respond to the large scale negative interest rates. And that offsets the rise in real yields. And the more I look at this, the more I'm convinced they have to do it. Now, the Fed doesn't want to do it, but Powell opened the door to that conversation last night when he said that negative interest rates are not a conversation for now, which means they're finally discussing in the Fed after completely um, you know, closing down any conversation about negative rates over the last few months. So I think the world is shifting. And if the world is shifting, well, then suddenly the distribution changes. So even if the Fed delivers negative rates, it kind of doesn't matter anymore because the market's going to have to price them. Yeah, and that's what we saw, as you mentioned, that the front ends of the US are pricing negative rates. The market will move to price them because it has to price the distribution in. And so that's where we're going. And that's why I clearly believe that when the US goes negative, well, then Europe will go more negative. Australia will go negative. New Zealand will go negative. When we had Paul talking about that yesterday, the RBNZ meeting, I mean, they're ready to go negative on interest rates. It's just the operational reasons um, of doing so that is stopping them right now. So, you know, does, does, you know, if you talk about it from a, a worldview, it almost becomes a, a game theory style situation of, of how negative do you go as to you try to support your own economy, but then you run the risk that your currency gets hit quite heavily. Hurrah. That's what you want, isn't it? It's, isn't this a beggar thy neighbor currency war that we're ha having? So if you can engineer currency weakness, that's the best thing you can possibly do. I don't think there's a country in the world that wants a strong currency right now. Um, and at some point, I believe the US, even though Trump has flip-flopped on this a number of times, I think at some point the US will come in to actively intervene to weaken their currency. Everyone wants a weaker currency. Going negative interest rates helps you get a weaker currency. That's a great thing. That's what you want. The world pie is not growing. The world pie is shrinking. You know, the, what GDP this year, OECD GDP this year is probably going to be minus 5%. Yeah, the, the pie is shrinking. So you just want to grab the biggest part of that pie you can. Now, to put that number in context, pre the GFC, it was OECD growth, 10-year average is around 6.5%. Post-GFC, 
G, uh, GFC has been running around three and a half percent. You're talking minus five this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, you want to get any growth you can in your economy. And if you can do that by stealing growth from someone else, well, hey, that's a good thing. Yeah, is this is this a potential though to ramify into um, you know inequality sort of issues as as you know inflation does start to pick up at a later stage? If your currency falls quite a lot, there's going to be then inflationary pressures that have start to affect people. Um, and we've already you know we saw in the last financial crisis there was a real social uprising against sort of the promotion um, and support of of Wall Street banks and. Um, the the financial support to some of the mortgage um, and originators and so forth. Mm. You know, do we run that sort of social uh, upheaval again now as as we start to go to this negative interest rates and and the man on the street has no idea what's going on and is really concerned? I think it's the opposite. Um, QE, so okay, so QE has been used since the GFC since two thousand and nine, pretty much, and it's been proven or widely accepted now that QE is great for stopping a depression. It's great for stopping your, your growth rates going down to minus five or minus 10, but it's not great in trying to goose growth up from one to two or two to three, it's what, and that's pretty much what central banks were doing with it. So they've misused QE for a number of years, and all they've done is blown massive asset price bubbles, um, and that makes the rich richer and the poor poorer. Negative interest rates, you could argue, is actually the opposite, because what you've done since the GFC, you've protected all bondholders. So bondholders in pretty much government bonds or credit bonds or even high-yield bonds, the Fed is now backstopped. So every bondholder in the world has been backstopped. Yeah. So effectively, they've been made good when they shouldn't have been made good. They've created massive moral hazard and the man on the streets pay for it. Well, now you've got negative interest rates. And negative interest rates means that actually if you're the man on the street, you're going to get the benefit of this as there's more money flowing through the system. And the people who are going to be hurt are the people, the rich people, the people who are actually the creditors. And that's what you want for the system. And what's the alternative? You can't do nothing because the world's imploding in terms of economic growth. You have to do something and QE just boosts more asset prices. And I think there's this massive backlash now, which is growing and it's probably going to be a, um, a, a talking point as we come into the US election. Well, how is Trump going to try and run on the ticket where S&P is at all-time highs, but there's 20% unemployment in the US. It's, it's impossible for him to win that game. So at some point, and I think the Fed clearly understands that and is very aware of the fact they need to be supporting Main Street, not Wall Street. But I think they've been misguided in their actions because they're largely supported Wall Street. So I think the pivot is about how do you get more money into the system without blowing, pushing up asset prices? And I think the way of doing that is negative rates. Now, ultimately, where do equities trade on negative rates? I, I have no idea. <laughs> like infinity, but yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there, come, there does come a point. <laughs> there does come a point with risk assets. So you can push the earnings down and the multiple up only to a certain level. Yeah, and that's where we are now. I think at the point that you know you can't constantly just inflate the multiple because your discount factor is lower. There has to be some common sense in it somewhere. Will will investors then sort of change their mindset in terms of you know this this idea of appreciation to really capital preservation um, yeah. and, and really looking for whatever is the most defensive asset that they, that they can buy? Yeah, I think we're there. I mean, the the people who who are, 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 are effectively what's happened is we've we've lived in a world where where and I've talk, talked about this with you and. Uh, uh, you know, connections conferences many times previously, you were forced out of the risk curve. You had no choice. The, you know, Bernanke and 
Yeah, then everyone and Mervyn King talked about it as being a portfolio rebalance today. So they buy government bonds. So therefore, you're forced to buy credit bonds. Then you they push the price up of those, the yield down of those. They force you into merger market bonds, into equity, into merger market equities. They drive up the capital price and everything, the yield on everything, so that equals the yield of cash, which is pretty much zero. And when you speak to anyone, they don't talk about what risk they're taking their portfolio. Um, it's not a risk return. Uh, trade-off anymore. It's it's effectively, I need this return, get it with whatever risk you need to take. So everyone's pushed themselves out of the risk spectrum. And then suddenly the Fed came and hiked the rug from under their feet by hiking interest rates. And that was the reason why the economy started slowing. And now they're trying to deal with, with the backstop. They're effectively trying to deal with about 50 different balloons deflating at the same time, and they've run out of bullets. You know, is is that uh, coming back to this concern that's out there? I think more broadly in the market from people uh, worried about the financial system being, you know, at risk because of what's going on. Is is that is that sort of a, a reason why we're starting to see gold getting a lot of support, and not only gold but now Bitcoin, where yeah. there's a whole lot of discussion about this concern about the whole financial system imploding. Yeah, um, yeah, very much so. Like if you can't trust. Um, what was that quote? Uh, there was a great quote that was in. Did you see Paul Tudor Jones's um, note over the weekend talking about Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he, he gave a whole list of series of the different yeah. uh, um, characteristics of a currency and what do yeah. you expect in terms of its value yeah. and its ability to to be transacted, to move yeah. it around the world. Yeah, it was really interesting. It, yeah, it was great. I mean, and gold's, I, I, gold's like a low-tech Bitcoin, yeah? Gold, people understand it. It has a use. You can buy jewellery out of it. It's, it's, it's proven as a store of value, and that's why gold's going up. And I, I, I'm long gold for the, the investment for funds I am allowed to hold commodities in. I actually have quite a decent-sized gold position in those funds um, for the kind of macro funds I run. Um, I'm, I'm PA. Of, I'm super bullish for Bitcoin. Um, I have been for a while. I just think that it's one of the few assets out there which which has a finite supply. And Tudor Jones talked about this in this note. And if you can't find it, you can Google it or get it on Zero Hedge. It's there for everyone to read. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other thing about Bitcoin is is that it's it's about adoption. So you, you had all these ICOs, initial coin offerings, a few years ago, and it was this race to the top. You had Ethereum, you had Ripple, you had all these other guys out there. And now it's Bitcoin. It's Bitcoin and then the rest. And the transaction volume of Bitcoin is so much larger than the rest. So therefore, it's the one coin that's going mainstream. And suddenly when you get the likes of Tudor Jones talking about it, and you know the super funds are looking at it, it only needs a small level of adoption to have a material impact on the price given the size of the asset class. And so that's the thing. You don't need to believe in the future of Bitcoin as an asset or the, the system breaking down you just need to believe in its adoption or its viability as an asset. And that's already happening. And so I don't see a world where, okay, you could you could lose 50% of your money on it, but you could make 10 times or 100 times on this. Mm-hmm. So I, I have no exposure for any funds, but PA, I, I, I really like it. And that's the thing. It's about when things get mainstream adoption that, that, that they start moving. And, and I think the other thing to remember is the world is so, so upset with the US right now because of the US is able to extract, what do they call it, the extraordinary privilege, the, the value of being the reserve currency. 
And so because of that, there is a move and there is large pressure along amongst the central banking committee to move away from the dollar. And therefore you need some kind of new reserve currency coming in. Now, will it be Bitcoin? Um, probably not because Bitcoin is an alternative to the US dollar. Will it be something more akin to the Libra coin, which Facebook um, touted? Now, obviously, that one's dead because it's Facebook and they have a brand problem. But the technology and the, the, the idea of that coin is, is exceptional. And it would be easy for someone else to come in and do a coin like that, maybe a central bank, turn it into another, like an the equivalent of the IMF uh, special drawing rights, SDRs. So the, so crypto is where we're going. There is no question. The world's moving off analog. The world's moving digital. Now, I'm not saying Bitcoin's going to be the coin, but in a world where, where the world is moving more, where it's moving more digital, well, then something like Bitcoin, which is the clear market leader, has to be involved. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just looking at this and saying, well, I can understand why all the you know shiny hat brigade are, uh, frothing at the mouth talking about it and you don't have to believe but I don't think you have to believe the system's going to collapse which I don't believe is going to happen to to like Bitcoin um, on a long-term basis it's purely a supply demand thing it's like any other asset but it's got finite supply in a world of increasing demand as it get, becomes more mainstream but I guess one of the things that's it's interesting with, with with that sort of transition is it, as you as you create this alternate currency, what's then the the threat to um, you know Bitcoin doesn't have a, uh, a a ruler if you want to call it that. Um, mm-hmm. you know, what's the threat to um, that as a as a currency or an alternate asset um, when you do have central banks that will try to look to create their own um, alternate coins and so forth? Yeah, but the point is is that I think that alternate coins. And we're getting we're getting into a world uh, now that, uh, we, that there's there's a thousand people who are much more experienced in this world than myself. But I just look at it more from a top down basis. Um, I think central banks don't want an alternative to their currencies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Bitcoin is an alternative to their currencies, but they want a coin which is linked to their currencies, and that's what Libra gave them. But I also don't think they they can't destroy Bitcoin now. Bitcoin has too many people involved, and there's too much wealth in Bitcoin. You can't come out and regulate Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's well, or you, you can regulate and tidy it up and make it more mainstream and investable, but you can't go and outlaw Bitcoin now. That 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 uh, horse has already bolted, and they bolted a bunch of years ago, and they had the opportunity to do it, but there was no joined up thinking at the government level. And now it's too late. And now so many people use it, and rightfully so. It's just another medium exchange, and it's one you can have confidence with because the central banks can't debase it. And bringing this back to more mainstream conversation, what are happening to central banks? Central banks were always um, a, a part of the government, but they were arm's length part of the government. Now they're not. Now they're being fully brought into the fold, doing the beck and call of whatever governments want them to do under the illusion of um, independence, which largely they don't even bother pretending anymore. I mean, central banks pretty much just do whatever they're told by the governments. And the governments do whatever they will to get elected, and that's why we're going down the route of Let's let, let's take it back. You know, you, you talked about sort of the volatility in, in the markets, and I, I think even just sort of the volatility that we've seen of, of late in terms of Bitcoin and that as a, as a strategy. I think one of the areas I wanted to touch on was the amount of debt that's in the system. You know, means everything's really levered. You've now got this volatility that starts to pick up. I know you've been doing quite a w- lot of work on on this space. Maybe if you could give a bit of background in terms of your thinking around volatility as a strategy. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, I think there's a number of points. Firstly, you're right. Um, there's too much debt in the system. And it was interesting to see the Aussie government coming out and say that we have to repay. There's zero. I mean, in Australia, we might give it a go. But when you look at the size of the debt in Japan, US, Europe, etc., UK, there's zero chance any of this debt will ever get paid. There is zero chance. Um, because the size of the economic slowdown you'd need um, to, to get the, this debt um, to, to raise the taxes to pay this debt back would be, just be too large. And also, it, it, it's just something that's politically unacceptable. So, that, so if you work on the premise of net, that will never be repaid, which is the premise I work on, well, then you're working about, well, how do they get out of this debt situation? And that's by buying the debt. The central bank just buy the debt. Ultimately, you could get a debt jubilee where we all cancel the debt, and that could be part of moving to some new uh, reserve currency, be it a crypto-based one. Um, but Or you just do what Japan does, is you know your central bank just buys all the debt that the treasury issues and it doesn't matter now in in the old understanding that meant that your currency weakens but it's proven not to be the case so you can just retire all your debt you can just own it all on the government's balance sheet the fed's pretty much trying to do that anyway i mean the balance sheet's going to be up at around 10 15 trillion i mean it, you know it's 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 moving so quickly now who knows where it's going to stop so that's the first thing so so in a, in so under that premise, central banks need to own bond yields. They need to own bonds, and they'll control the bond yields. So the likes of me, and I've been around in these markets since '94, and I'm what they used to tell the old bond vigilantes. We'd come in, we didn't like budget deficits. We'd drive up bond yields to um, exert fiscal discipline on governments. We don't exist anymore because the governments drive determine the price of everything now governments by central banks. So bond yields pretty much won't exist in five years' time, in my view. So my my job as head of bonds, well, that, that won't exist. But the bond markets will largely be set by the government. Um, bond yields will be set by the government. So what that means, though, is when you have divergent economic cycles, it's largely been expressed via the bond yield and the currency market. Now, we know that the currency markets are being manipulated um, by some large actors out of Asia. Um, and that's suppressed FX volatility. But it's highly likely now that when bond yields are capped, at, you know, are held or capped at roughly zero across the world, that you get the volatility that, that out of the economic system expressing itself in FX instead. And FX vol should and is picking up. So we would expect that the bond yield volatility goes down, but at the same time, you see increasing volatility in equity markets and increasing volatility in FX markets. And we we position for that via, we have a fund called Alvis, which is Active Long Volatility Strategy. It's a unitized fund in Australia, multi-asset, which um, positions for increases in volatility. It's never short vol, it's only either flat vol or long vol, and as you would expect, has performed extremely strongly over um, you know, the last few months. Um, and we have that product specifically when it has takes most of its risk in equity and FX vol and doesn't do bond vol specifically because of the view that we've been taking on this. So that that product we we um, you know we position a lot of our um, volatility in that product. It's a systematic product, but we take the learnings out of that product and express them through our other funds in the boutique. And that's one of the reasons why performance across the all the funds in the boutique, and especially like the likes of the macro funds and the composite products and every fund we run in the boutique has performed so strongly of late is because we can take the learnings out of that volatility side and express them in other products. It's like we have another 
bow to our uh, string to our bow that most other people don't have because they don't have a specialist volatility unit that we do in our team. I'm curious, you know, we, we, we talk a lot in the Australian market to the pension funds where there's this, you know, set SAA and the traditional asset classes. Should there be um, uh, a specific, you know, allocation to long vault given given what's happened to markets to date and where we are in the general market environment? Oh, I think there has to be. Like, because you ultimately, you, but bonds have always been, so you take a risk parity fund, yeah? So what do you do? You, you, what's the basis of a risk parity fund? You, you own a bunch of equities, you lever up the bond side to give you the same risk as the equities, and then you just run both of them. And they have a pleasant negative correlation. But, but all, what you've done is you've effectively built a big leverage portfolio in a rising asset price world, which works very well. Now, if interest rates are at zero across the world, now I believe that you know 10-year Treasury is probably going to go minus one or minus two. I think 10-year Aussie is going to go negative. But I'm in the minority. I'm pretty sure I'm in the minority of that view. If you at zero, most people don't think it's worth owning bond yields. So if you can't own the bond yield, which has an negative, implicit negative correlation to equities, well, then can you run a risk penalty strategy? Because, because you don't have the implicit offset, plus and then the bonds have a strong positive accrual because they roll down the curve. And so what do you do? You have to have something else in there. And so that something else is vol. But the problem is, is that running long vol is largely a negative carry day. That's why some short vol strategies are so prevalent and so well performing and have such high sharp ratios. So one thing we're bouncing around, and we're not sure if it's going to come to fruition yet, is we're bouncing around a variable fold fund where we could have short follow times in the cycle and long follow times in the cycle using the, the Alvis product to signal to already built, which we already run. And so that's a product we're, we're bouncing around at the moment to see whether it has legs, whether there's interest, whether, and also whether we can build it. But they're the kind of things I think you need to start looking at because I think the old way of looking at diversified funds is largely debt. I mean, because a lot of assets, a lot of equities now are just utilities. They just they don't exist in in you know in terms of everything is being driven largely by the facts world now yeah because there's so much um, so much focus and so many assets being run under under passive strategies which are largely factor focused well it's about how how the markets how flows come in and out those passive strategies and how the different factors move it's not about the underlying valuation of of assets anymore. You know, it's, it's like central planning. It, it's literally like we work in the markets under the illusion that they're free, but actually they're not. That's a fascinating conversation. I think it's probably a good time to leave it, but I think for, for future conversations, the real discussion around sort of the the impact of the systematic flows, the passive flows and this price, you know, indiscriminate buying um, that we've seen and sort of that's impact on markets is something to, to look into. So thank you very much for your time today, Will. Thanks, Alex. Great speech, you, mate. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.